good morning, Grace. Good morning, Grace family. I'm, thank you. That's a little better. I'm excited to be with you as we get into God's Word this morning. We are uh, jumping back into Genesis. If you've been with us, yeah, you can clap for that. If you've been with us for, uh, some of you were anyway, some of you were like, huh? If you were with us the last few weeks, we've been in a mini, mini series, three weeks on victory, with, which Pastor Phil and Pastor Jeff taught through. And as we jump back into Genesis, we're going to pick up where we left off, and I'll catch you up just briefly for those who weren't there. But here's what you got to remember. We're not leaving victory. That wasn't a mini-series that ended. We're not leaving victory. Actually, if you've been here for a while and you pay attention to the screen that you've seen all the way through this whole year when we've been in Genesis, we changed a few letters on there. It used to say, Knowing God's Story and Ours, which is a, which is a pretty good subtitle because it's only through knowing God's story and the story he's writing that it, we make sense of our story and the story he is writing in us, and he's the one who holds the pen, Remember? But because he holds the pen, do you know how this story ends? Victory. <laughs> victory. No matter what you're experiencing, no matter what you're feeling right now, this story ends in victory. And we don't have to wait till all, the, all the way to the end to get there. Amen? Like we point to Revelation 21 and 22, right? And that victory is coming, praise Jesus. The full and final and victory when we will be finally free and in his presence unhindered forever. So praise God, that victory is coming. And victory doesn't start on Revelation 21.1. Victory comes through the whole story he's writing. And we're going to see that this morning as we visit one of the weirdest stories in the entire Bible, which is another reason I'm excited to be with you and dive into that. Before I do, let me, let me pray for us one more time, and then we'll dive into Genesis 32. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. As we have worshipped you in song, lifting praises to you, with, the, with these voices that you have given us, as we have brought our gifts to you from the resources that you have given us. We surrender the next few moments to you. When we could be thinking about so many other things in our lives, God, we ask that you would transform our minds, renew our minds, that we might be focused on your word, for that is where we have life. We have it in you, Lord. So we thank you for this word that you are speaking to us, and we pray that you would make us ready listeners right now. That we would receive the words of challenge, the words of comfort, the words of love, the words of conviction, the words of life that you would speak to us this morning, that we might follow you more closely today, Jesus, than yesterday. And that we might love you more deeply today than yesterday, even as you deeply love us. We thank you for your faithfulness, Jesus, and we trust you to be faithful today. And in this time together, let this be a time of worship too, as we open your word in your name, amen. So if you have your Bibles or devices, you can open to Genesis chapter 32. We will be in the story of Jacob today, but before we do that, I want to tell you one other story. There's a story that C.S. Lewis wrote called The Horse and His Boy. And it's one of the Chronicles of Narnia. And in this story, it centers around a boy named Shasta who goes on an incredible adventure, except it doesn't feel like much of an adventure when you're in it. It's scary and it's tiring and it's exhausting and it's dangerous. And so he is on the run from his family during this story, and, and during his journey, he has been chased by lions, surrounded by wild animals that are roaring, constantly at threat of his life. He's had to sleep in graveyards, and there was a cat in there that comforted him, but there were wild animals around that might be wanting to kill him. Through all his travels and through these adventures, he met a friend named Erebus, and they were traveling together. But now, at the, at the end, there's... There's another lion that comes and attacks him and they get separated and now he is left alone in the dark and can't see a thing. 
but he senses that someone else is there. Here's breathing, imagines it might be a giant that's ready to eat him. Has it come to this? And he's frightened, and he's hungry, and he's exhausted, and he begins crying. Finally, he says, Who are you? And the stranger, whoever it is, the stranger says, reassures him like he's not going to eat him. He's going to be okay. The stranger listens as Shasta says, here's what I've been through all the way along. And then the stranger identifies himself. And you know what the stranger says? I am the lion. The stranger says, I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the tombs. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you as you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you should reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to the shore where a man sat wakeful at midnight to receive you. And Shasta finally fully meets this lion that we know if we've read the Chronicles of Narnia as Aslan, and we know he's good. But if you remember, he's not safe. And Shasta's just beginning to learn that as he learns about this lion who is willing to scare and scar and chase down all to protect. There's something dangerous in that story, right? Some kind of terrifying in that. That Aslan would be willing to do that, and yet also something comforting too. And where Shasta found himself that night, that's very much a somewhat similar place to where Jacob finds himself one evening. He is traveling back to the promised land in Genesis chapter 32. If you were with us a few weeks ago, we know that Jacob left the promised land because his brother was going to kill him. And he left the promised land and he went to his uncle Laban and there he found a wife, even more than one wife. And he actually said, when he leaves the promised land, he has only a staff. And when he comes back, he has two wives and servants and 11 or 12 kids by now. He has flocks and herds and riches. He has an abundance. And yet, he still has to face his brother. And so in chapter 32, we're not going to read it, but he prays to God. And that's good because he hasn't been a praying man much of his life. But he prays to God and says, thank you. Like, I, I left and I had nothing. And now I've come back and I have an abundance. And I wasn't worthy of all that you have given me. But he's not really praying just to thank God. He's really praying because he is desperately afraid that his brother who wanted to kill him 20 years ago still wants to kill him. So he's praying for rescue. And then he comes up with a plan. And he comes up with all these gifts he's going to send ahead of him to Esau. And he says, maybe with these gifts, he says, I will pacify my brother Esau with these gifts I am sending him ahead. Later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. Isn't it interesting? He prayed to God for rescue, but here he's saying, maybe what I did, maybe what I did will be enough. Maybe it'll be enough to rescue me. And it's in this place that we pick it up, and he's already prayed, he's already planned, and that's enough. Let's get on to the next day, right? But he doesn't get on to the next day. In Genesis 32, starting in verse 22, we're going to pick it up to the end of the chapter, and it says this. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons, and he crossed the ford of Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Then the man said, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel. It's a name that means face of God. 
So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. I love that. So every year, every, every time that the children of Israel for years and generations afterwards sat down to eat meat, they remembered this weird story. Maybe we'll find out why this morning. Maybe we'll find out why. So at the beginning, Jacob in, in, in verse 22, after making his plans, he sends his whole family across. And he stays, and it says, so Jacob was left alone. And we, we're not told the motivation that Jacob had when he left himself alone. Maybe he just wanted to rest. Like, I need some rest for my family. I need my strength to face Esau tomorrow. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know why he intended, but he intentionally arranged it so that he was left alone. I can tell you what happened after he was left alone. Do you know what? He had a life-changing experience and encounter of the person and presence of God. So whatever his motivation was, that was the place he found himself. Do you want that? Do you want a life-changing encounter with the person and presence of God? Don't we all want that in some way? I mean, that's what we've been talking about recently. Last week, if you were with us, with Pastor Jeff, speaking about hearing the voice of God through his word and how we posture ourselves for that, about how place was important. If you were with us on Wednesday night, we kind of continued to that, that together. Pastor Jeff led us through hearing God's word together. Any hands in the air if you were with us on Wednesday night to experience hearing God's word? Okay, a lot of you were there. We had about, if, you were, if you weren't, we had about 220, maybe more of us in this room here listening to God's word together and through Pastor Jeff and through each other. It was an incredibly life-giving time, wasn't it? And it? And beyond all that, after that night, we were thinking like... In, Plus, Awaken, our, our, our student ministry was here with them. There were over, at least over 100 people in there. So we had nearly 400 people in this building experiencing hunger and life in the presence of God and his people. Amen? So, like, if you didn't make it, yeah, yeah, we can applause for that. If you didn't make it on Wednesday night, I, I don't want to say you didn't miss anything. You missed something. <laughs> but you don't have to have made it last Wednesday for this Wednesday to be meaningful, okay? So I would encourage you to come out and join God's people. If you're in junior high or high school, head over there to Awaken. Uh, if you're dropping off your kids, come in and, and stay with us and let's listen to God's word together. But, but one of the things we heard last Sunday and on, on Wednesday was that place is significant in hearing the voice of God. And we forget that sometimes, Right? Forget the place is significant. We want to hear God's voice in the midst of everything else going on in our lives, in the midst of our daily lives. And he speaks that way, yes, but place is important. And aren't our lives so noisy? Aren't they so crazy? Aren't they so busy? You, don't, you know what Dallas Willard says? He says, the greatest enemy to the human soul is busyness. Our schedules are so busy. Our, 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 our lives are so busy. Our moments are so busy. Right now your mind is probably racing. You might be trying to listen to me. Thank you if you are. But like your mind is racing to what's coming up, what's coming up next. Half of you have looked at your phone 20 times already before the, since this message started, right? Like we just keep filling our moments. And they're so very busy. When was the last time you got alone? I mean, Jesus, you know what Jesus said? He said, I speak only what I have heard from the Father. Really? Jesus, how did you do it? Do you know one of the things Jesus did? It, often, it says he withdrew often to the wilderness, to solitude. I think that put him in a place to hear the voice of God. When was the last time you withdrew? When was the last time you withdrew? Like you, you were unavailable, listen, to everybody except for God. It's so hard to do, isn't it? Because our lives are so noisy. Like, seek a risky solitude. This is something we can learn from Jacob. He intentionally put himself in this place and a life-changing encounter with God happened. Now God can speak through the noise. He can speak through the busyness. 
But he often speaks in quiet, too. Are we seeking that quiet? And it is so hard to find quiet, isn't it? Like, uh, my, my family and I, we lived on East Main Street for the longest time. For years and years, we lived on East Main Street in New Freedom. And it got so noisy, and we just found ourselves longing for quiet. Do you ever just long for quiet? So we put up our house for sale because we wanted to move off Main Street and away from the noise. And so we sold that house on East Main Street, and God provided a rental on South Main Street. (laughs) I don't want to seem ungrateful. The house is a blessing, but it is not quiet. It is not quiet. Man, there are garbage trucks and there's like they're building houses like up the hill and there is noise and a neighbor's TV and a neighbor's dogs and it's so hard to find quiet. There's some mornings though where I sit there and there's, oh, there's quiet. And then I hear, And I'm like, is that, is that the air brakes from a truck that is somehow snuck in my kitchen? No, it's, it's the clock on my kitchen wall that has the loudest tick ever. I have to pull out the batteries. It is so hard to find quiet. Do you seek solitude? Do you put yourself in a place where you can hear from God apart from everything else? Do you know why we don't sometimes? Because that's scary. I, I, see, I, I think I used to like being alone. I like solitude. I love being alone. Watching a movie. I love being alone and listening to music and reading a good book, scrolling through my phone. That's not solitude. When I actually put it all aside... I find it's hard to put it all aside. And I'm, it's not 10 minutes go by before I'm reaching for my phone to check that email that was just checked just in case something came through, just in case there's something I need to deal with. Why are we like this? Henry Nowen gives us, gives us a pretty good idea. He says this. He says, in solitude, I get rid of my scaffolding. I get rid of my scaffolding. No friends to talk with, no telephone calls to make, no meetings to attend, no music to entertain, no books to distract. Just me. Is that scary to anybody else? Just me. Naked, vulnerable, weak, sinful, deprived, broken, nothing. It is in this nothingness that I have to face in my solitude. A nothingness so dreadful that everything in me wants to run to my friends, my work, and my distractions so that I can forget my nothingness and make myself believe I'm worth something. Do you know why it's so hard for us to let go of some of this? I think he's on to something. This is a scaffolding. And I, and I keep checking email to see if there's a problem that I can fix to solve to prove that I'm worth something. And is there somebody to call to prove that, so that I can be worth something to them, so that I can prove the worth of my own existence? And when I get alone, I get scared. And maybe I'm not worth anything. See, but it's only when we get alone like that that we find out our worth doesn't come from all that stuff. It doesn't even come from in here. It comes from him. You have worth not not because of how busy your life is and how much you've accomplished or how much you can do or how skilled you are, because he loves you. And Jesus died on a cross for love of you. You are worth so much. But it doesn't come from this scaffolding. You ever been up on scaffolding? I've been up on scaffolding sometimes 20, 30 feet in the air. Man, you get up 20, 30 feet, it sure doesn't feel secure. It is shaky. Every little shift of your weight, like it shakes, whoa, shakes you. You get up on 30 feet in the air on scaffolding. Man, if I could just be back on solid ground, I'm looking forward to being back on solid ground. All this stuff that we find our worth in, our value in, it's scaffolding that can't, it can't hold us up. But listen, there's a rock. There's solid ground. For Jacob and for us, there's solid ground. He's going to find it. 
He's going to find it. That's good news. But it's going to get worse before it gets better. You ever have that happen? You pray about something. Things look bad. So you pray to God. And it gets worse. You just want him to fix everything. And he doesn't. And things actually get darker. So Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. So Jacob finally gets this solitude. He's out in the dark, out in the desert, no sound around, his, just his own breathing. Oh, quiet. And then he hears a step behind him. And he starts to turn. And it's another step. And somebody running towards him. And before he can turn all the way, somebody slams into his back and tackles him and wrestles him for hours until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And it gets worse before it gets better. But, but who was this really? I mean, like who was wrestling Jacob? It says a man, the man. Who was wrestling him? If you look elsewhere in Scripture, it refers to this incident and says Jacob wrestled an angel. So so it could have been an angel, but really what Jacob says at the end of this passage, he says it himself, I have come face to face with God. So whether it was representative of God or God himself, we're going to take Jacob's word for it, that he came face to face with some manifestation of God in physical form. He prays and God shows up. He prays and wrestles with God. And, and so, but, but what about this? It says the man saw, that, so if this is God, like it says the man saw that he could not overpower him. And then the man says, let me go. Let me go. Are you saying like Jacob had power over this man? No, that's not what I'm saying. I think where, where it says that the man could, that he could not overpower Jacob, that's actually a kind of a poor translation. The NIV does us a disservice there. The language could just as easily just be translated, he did not overtake him. Like Jacob didn't submit after all the wrestling, after all the hours, Jacob didn't lie down. Because this wasn't a contest of strength. Do you know? Like, like Jacob, don't, don't make any mistake here. Jacob was never in any danger of winning this wrestling match. Not, not once. Because, because when he actually got injured, you know what? The, the, man had, the man just had to reach out and touch. That's it. <laughs> wrestling for hours here, I'm going to wrench your hip. Done. So this was not a strength contest. It's kind of like, like when my kids were young and I used to wrestle them. I still do sometimes. But my kids were young. It's not a contest of strength when you're wrestling with kids, is it? Right? Could you imagine if it was like my six-year-old comes up to me? All right, let's go, pal. <laughs> you want to more? Okay, all right, come on. <laughs> Got him again. My wife and the police would not be very impressed, right? It's, it's not a contest of strength when I'm wrestling with kids, right? I, I purposely restrain my strength. I could take them any second, but I, d- I don't. Why? Because I want to be close to them. I want to get close enough to hug them. I want to see their faces. I want to get to know them. I want to know them to know they're safe. Like, I, I, I don't, I purposely restrain my strength. And that's what Jacob says. Like, I've come face to face with God, and yet he didn't slay me outright. He restrained his strength. So some of that, I think, is what's going on here. And we look at this and say, yeah, but, but he touched him and wrenched Jacob's hip. He wounded him. What kind of God does this, right? What kind of father does this? God shows up in ways we don't expect. God shows up in the dark and we actually find out that he's the lion. What do we do with that? We want rescue and God just shows up to wrestle, it seems like. He's willing to wound us in order to accomplish his will. He'll pain, suffering. 
Yeah, and maybe he's good, but he sure isn't safe. Like, what do we do with that? Because what's our question in any of those moments in our lives? Why? Like, God, why would this happen? Why would you allow this? God, why would you maybe even, are you causing this? Like, why? But that's not actually the most important question. Actually, do you want the answer to that question? Why? Was there any other way that God could have gotten through to Jacob? Did he have to wound him, really? Why did he do it? I don't know. We're not told. Maybe there was another way. I don't know what it was. I don't, I don't know why he wounded him. Do you, do you know why that suffering is going on in your life? Why God, who if he's sovereign over all, could allow this into your life, whatever this is? Do you know why? I, I don't know. But actually, that's not the most important question. Gene Edwards puts it like this, this question of suffering. He says this, the question is not, and listen to all the questions that we would typically ask. The question is not, why is God doing this? Why is he like this? The question is not, why does he not answer me? The question is not, I need him desperately. Why does he not come rescue me? The question is not, why did God allow this tragedy or this suffering to happen to me, to my children, to my wife, to my husband, to my family? Those aren't the questions. This is what he says. The question before the house is this. Will you follow a God you do not understand? Will you follow a God who does not live up to your expectations? Who shows up in the dark and things just seem to get worse? Will you follow him? Jacob has the chance to answer that question. You know what he says? He says, yes. Like this one who wounds, like what would you do if you were wrestling and somebody wounded you? I thought thought we were just playing. And you wounded me? I'm going to run, I'm going to hide, I'm going to get out of there. Look what he does. I will not let go. That's what he says. Why? Until you bless me. Because this one, I don't, know, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know why you're doing it. But I know this. I know you have the power to bless me. Truly bless. Not like Isaac, my dad, blessed me years ago. Like you have the, you have the power to bless me completely. Will we do what Jacob did? Will we cling to the God who can change us? Like, that's ultimately why Jacob hangs on. Like, this God, I don't know what he's doing. I don't know why he's doing it, but I know this. I know he has power to bless. I know he has power to change. I know he has power to transform. Will we cling to the God, the only one who can change us? Do you know how much Scripture affirms our persistence, our endurance in this Christian life? Now, listen, it's not our strength that does it. It's his strength, and yet what do we do? We hang on. Are you, are you hanging on? Are you just throwing up your hands and saying, I don't know what you're doing, but I'm going to go somewhere else to get my needs met, God? Scripture tells us again and again and again, keep going after him. He's going after you. Keep going after him. Do you know what Jesus says? He says, ask and it will be given. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened. You know what he's saying? He's saying, in this life of following me, I promise you this, there's treasure. Oh, anybody want treasure? How many times do we wait for it to just be plopped in our lap? Jesus says, go seek it. There's doors that God will open and wants to open in your life, but he tells us to knock. How much time do we spend knocking? Do you, if, you, if you want a metaphor for my prayer life sometimes, you want to know what it is? All right. Hmm. Well, I guess God's, God's going to do what he's going to do. That's not what we're told to do. We're told to knock. How would you knock if you expected the door to be opened? If it was a party you were invited to, if you know who who is on the other side of that door is good, you would keep knocking. 
That's how we're told to pray. Keep knocking. Not like you don't want to bother who's inside. Like, like you're that annoying neighbor who needs that one ingredient to make bread for the guests. That was, that's what Jesus says. Like that neighbor who won't shut up in the middle of the night because they need what you have and won't let you sleep. Knock like that. Are you clinging to God like that? Are you chasing after him like that? Now listen, not because God it will only give in when we badger him enough. That's not, what, that's not what Jesus is saying. No, but because that, that neighbor gives in, God's so much better than that neighbor. He has what you need. See, see, God has the answer to the questions. He's going to give the answer in relationship. Not, not just like, here you go. It's not a transaction. This is a relationship. Are you clinging to the God who can change you even when he doesn't meet your expectations? This is why when Jesus finally decided to stop handing out free lunches and everybody started leaving, turns to Peter and says, you're going to go anywhere else? Peter says, where else are we going to go? I don't know why you're going to let us go hungry today, Jesus, but you have the words of life. There's nowhere else to go. This is why Job can say, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. That's why Jacob can say, ah, you can wound me, you can do your worst, I don't understand any of it. All I know is this, I am going to hang on till you bless me. Are you hanging on till he blesses you? And blessing's coming. But it gets harder before it gets easier. Again? Yeah, again. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Now we can read over that. Gloss over that, but listen, like it's like Pastor Jeff has said in the past, when God asks a question, it's not for his benefit, right? He's not trying to get information out of Jacob. He's saying, Jacob, are you like, are you gonna tell me your name? Are, are you willing to tell me who you are? That's what a name was back then. It was your reputation, it was it was your life, it was how you've been living life, it was your character. That's your name. Jacob, will you tell me? Will you admit? what your name is. He's calling Jacob to look in a mirror. To look fearlessly into the mirror. Are we willing to look fearlessly into the mirror of who we are? Jacob, what's your name? The last time Jacob was asked who you are, who are you? You know who was it who asked him? Isaac. Who are you? You know what he answered? I'm Esau, your son, the one that deserves the blessing. So give it to me. What are you going to answer now, Jacob? The God he doesn't understand, the God who's so much more powerful than he is, the God who was able to bless him stands in front of us. Will you look at yourself in the mirror? Who are you really? Jacob says, I'm a heel grabber. I have been since the day I was born. Deceiver. I've cheated, I've lied, I've stole, I've wrestled everything I can out of this life. Everything I think I deserve, I've done it in my own strength, my own way. Because nobody is in my corner except for me. And so I'm going to do everything I can because nobody else is for me. That's what God wanted to hear. Are you willing to admit who you are? What about you? Who are you? What's your name? If you had to admit what your name was over this last week or over this last year or over this last season of your life, what name would it be? Would it be Christ follower? Ready surrenderer? Would it be pain avoider or pleasure addict or show off or workaholic or comfort seeker or distraction chaser? or harsh critic, or people pleaser, or someone who's just trying to build that scaffolding so high and so firm that you don't realize it's shaky. What's your name? Are you willing to, to look in the mirror? 
take a risky look in the mirror. Because we, we say, I know we like to focus on God's love, right? So this is a hard question. Like, really? I've heard people say this before, you know, like if, if, G, if you were the only one on this whole earth, Jesus would die for you. I have some issues with that statement that I can't get into right now. But like, listen, the, the main idea of that statement is correct. God loves you enough. His love uniquely for you alone is enough. If you were the only one, Jesus would have died for you. He loves you that much. But let's hang on just a second. But before we get there, like, there's a truth behind that. Like, let's take a step back and say, if you were the only, were you ready for this? If you were the only one, Jesus still would have needed to die. Because, like, we get a look in the mirror and we're like, it's not that bad. Didn't murder anybody. I'm not addicted to anything that I know of right now. Like, I'm just, I'm doing all right. You know, Jesus didn't come for the just doing all right. He he didn't come for those of us who can get 90%, who can do life 95% on our own. And we just need that last little 5%. He didn't come for them. He didn't come for the righteous. He didn't come for those who look. He came for the sick, the sinners, the unrighteous. He came for me. It came for you. And if you were the only one, like, listen, do you know how bad it is? Like, your rebellion against God. I don't care if you didn't physically kill anybody. It's that bad that Jesus had to go to the cross for you. Are you able to take a fearless look in the mirror and say, yeah, that's who I am. That's my name. That's what you need. You need to show up in solitude. You need to show up with nothing. You need to show up realizing without Jesus, you're nothing. Tim Keller says all you need is need. You take a look in the mirror recently and realized how much you need him. Hmm. We're going to take a moment to look in the mirror. Uh, on your way in, there were communion elements. I'd like you to get those out. If someone, if you didn't get those on the way in, raise a hand and one of the ushers will be around to pass one out. But do you know what Paul says before we take communion? He says, examine yourselves. He says, examine yourselves. And so as, as the elements are being brought around to those who don't have them, I'm just going to pray and you can Leave your eyes open and receive your communion and all of that. But I'm just going to pray that we would examine ourselves before him in this moment. And so, Lord God, we come before you now. We thank you for this opportunity to remember you, Jesus. To remember for your sacrifice for us. To remember that it was necessary for me. And before we celebrate, before we remember in this way, we just take this moment to examine ourselves. And God, I pray that you would bring to us, bring to mind any area of our lives that's not surrendered to you. God, for those who might be in this room who have have never said yes to you, Jesus, I pray that you would bring to mind a real painful look at who they are. In whatever way they're a Jacob, in whatever the way they're trying to do life in their own strength, I pray that you would just give them a clearer look in the mirror to realize that it's not enough. They aren't enough. We aren't enough, Jesus, but we don't have to be because you are. God, for those of us who have already said yes to you, I pray that you would just bring to mind an area of our life where we have been blind where we haven't looked in the mirror and, and recognized, and I'm living in rebel. I'm living like Jesus, like you aren't Lord over this area of my life. I'm living like I kind of sort of do okay without you. God, we bring that area of life to you. We surrender that to you now. And we thank you that as we come to this symbol, that it's a symbol of the truth that you died for this too. 
For those of us in relationship with you, Jesus, who have said, yes, you, you died for, uh, for me. You are my Savior, Lord. It's that simple. Like, just believing in you, Jesus. And it's covered. Even this. This area, this sin, it's covered. It's forgiven. It's, I'm accepted. And we come longing to follow you more deeply, Lord. In surrender. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. And so as we take the elements, I just want to keep it in mind of this God who wounds us. I want us to remember that we're not the only ones who were wounded. That he was wounded for us. And so as we look to the bread, just hear this. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This bread is a symbol of the body of Jesus Christ on whom all of our iniquities were laid. Let's take this in remembrance of him. As we turn our attention to the juice now, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And the Lord makes his life an offering for sin. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors let's drink this with an awareness that it represents the blood of Jesus poured for us Jesus I thank you for your death and your sacrifice for us I thank you that You did not sit by and let us wallow in our sin and in our separation from you. But you stepped down off the throne and up onto a cross that you might bear the pain and the guilt that belonged to us. The punishment of the sin that was ours. That you would pay that penalty so that we might be made right with you. We remember your wounding, Lord. And we remember that it is in this that we find victory. You were victorious for us and three days later rose out of that grave to prove to us that you died not just to take the punishment for our sin, but to defeat the impact of our sin, the consequences of our sin, the death that had come as a result of our sin. And now we might have new life in you. We praise you, Jesus, and we thank you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. And that's not all. That's not all. Jesus just doesn't die to save us from our sins. He just doesn't die to wipe away our old identity. He gives us a new one. Praise God. He gives us a new one. And then the man said, I love this, not anymore. Jacob comes to the point. He's finally willing to admit, yes, this is who I am. Yes, it's that bad. God says, not anymore. This isn't your name anymore. Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. And isn't that a weird thing to say? Like, what does he mean by that? I mean, I guess we could say Jacob has struggled with humans, right, and overcome. I mean, he, he outwitted his blind father and got a blessing, right? And he cheated his brother out of the birthright and stole from Laban enough. He ended up on top of Laban. 
for all the trickery that went on there. So I guess he wrestled with men. He struggled with men and overcame. But God, really? He struggled against God. He didn't win. No, Jacob didn't win because he overcame. Jacob won because he surrendered. (laughs) You know, uh, the name Israel. (laughs) It's made up of two words in the original Hebrew. One word is God. And the other word can be translated struggled, wrestled. And so a lot of people translate it wrestles with God. Struggles against God. That's what I thought the whole time. That's what I, I, I thought it meant. But do you know, do you know what that word can also be translated as? Not just wrestled, not just struggled, not just strived, overcame. Had victory. Won. And so when I looked up to just double check what the word meant, wrestles against God, right? You know what the lexicon said that I looked it up in? It said, God overcomes. God has victory. God prevails. God wins. <laughs> do you hear what, do you see what happened here? The man who used to be called heel grabber, who got everything by his own strength, who wrestled for all he deserved, who deceived everybody and cheated everybody, and and his brother said, man, isn't he named right? Heel grabber. He gets renamed. God wins. God has victory. And I'm betting somebody somewhere along the way, or at least me today, says, man, isn't he aptly named God overcomes. Do you want a name like that? God wins. Do you know what that is? That's the story. That's the victory that God continues to write in us. Even as we come to Jesus, we who had a name that was for nothing but ourselves, he gives us a name that was for his glory. A name that says God wins to everybody else. That's the story he keeps writing on all of our lives. I want to introduce you to a man this morning who has recognizes that's the story God is writing in his life. Mike Silva is a part of the family of grace here. And, you know, we made that offer a few uh, weeks back that any of you can email lifestories at gfcshrewsbury.org and share what God is doing in your life. And we're going to find ways to put this out before us. And so Mike emailed, and I'm so grateful he did, and he is here this morning to share his testimony with us. Would you please welcome Mike Silva? Good morning, Grace family. I'm truly humbled to share my story with you. I want to provide you with a little background about myself. I was raised in a Catholic household. I was forced to go to church with my mother by my father, and he only attended on holidays. I knew there was a God, and I believed in him. I knew God supposedly loved me, but I never heard of having a personal relationship with Jesus. I never understood why I had to go through a middleman to interact with God. Everything was very religious to me, but seemed to lack substance. I had a rough childhood. My father was an alcoholic and rarely present. When he was, it wasn't very pleasant. I hated my father and was determined that I would not be like him. I was going to be a better man, a better husband, and a better father. Little did I know, I had much to learn. Out of rebellion against an oppressive father, I started smoking pot, drinking, and taking speed at the age of 14. It was pure defiance. I would do all I could to get away with things, especially when he was away at sea and off the grid. At age 16, my friends started using what I like to call the hard stuff. This scared me, and I stopped using everything. I didn't know it then, but I know now that was God. In my college years, I started partying again heavily with alcohol, but this slowed down as I started my career full-time. I chose healthcare as a profession because I wanted to help people. Becoming a caregiver is a common trait of alcoholics. I became a registered nurse and started my career at at the Shock Trauma Center. I saw many horrific things there. Drunk driving accidents, deaths, and many alcohol and 
drug-related traumatic events. God was gracious enough to show me the consequences of drinking, but the message did not get through. I was married at a young age, and I met Jesus in my first marriage. My wife's uncle was a pastor and a kind soul. He taught me that God didn't want my religion. He wanted my heart. He made Jesus seem real to me. Those words stick with me to this day. Unfortunately, my wife and I didn't really understand what a healthy marriage was. Ten years into a very broken marriage, I started drinking heavily to cope. Shortly afterwards, marriage number two came along. This was a rescue attempt for me, and for many reasons, this marriage failed as well. I continued to use alcohol to cope with the pain. I met my lovely wife, Lisa, in 2004. Lisa and I hit it off immediately. She helped me with my children from my previous marriages and grew to love them like her own. I believe Lisa took on more than she expected. I was basically raising my daughter on my own when we met and my sons were with me part-time. My drinking varied at this time. I could drink socially, but at times would go too far. Lisa and I faced a lot of difficulties and, and struggles. We were trying to build some normalcy out of the chaos of it all. We had our son in 2007. We were attending church services at Grace and Timonium intermittently, but I was not walking with Jesus. My drinking patterns continued to worsen over the next few years. I hid my drinking at times, and I lied about it. In 2013, our lives were shattered. Lisa almost died after complications from surgery. After surgery, she was changed in many ways. Not only had she changed physically, but that experience had changed her faith forever. She turned to Jesus and leaned in him to cope. I turned to alcohol as a way of coping. I was angry with God for letting this happen. I wasn't there for her the way I should have been. Over the next few years, I was in a constant battle. I was, I was in a wrestling match with God. I listened to the sermons in church. So many times, I knew the message was meant for me. I knew I was sinning. I knew that I wanted to be a better man. Um, but I decided I didn't need anyone's help. I decided I could manage things myself. I refused to admit that I was an alcoholic. I thought things like, I can stop anytime and I can control my drinking. I cannot express how exhausting this constant strife in my mind was. It was a daily war inside my head. All the while, my deceitfulness and bad behaviors continued. I did some incredibly shameful things during that time. I always found some way to justify things or, or would ask for forgiveness. I would stop drinking for brief periods, but it never lasted. In 2017, it all came to a head. My father was receiving chemo for lung cancer and wasn't doing well. My mother was admitted to the hospital for cancer. My father got the flu from visiting my mom in the hospital and it took his life. Soon thereafter, Lisa and I were talking. I took one look in her eyes and I knew she was done. Despite her faith and devotion, she couldn't take it anymore. I knew if I didn't get help and admit to who I really was, she would leave. I had reached rock bottom. I walked into my first life recovery meeting on June 20th. Life recovery is a Christ-centered, 12-step discipling ministry at Grace designed to help people seeking spiritual, emotional, and physical restoration and healing from addiction and other behaviors. I walked into that meeting after having had a drink, despite knowing I had to change. Thankfully, Jesus put a young man named Mark in my path that evening, and he called me out. And we started a conversation that would change my life. I am so humbled to say that with the Lord's help, I have not had a drink since that evening over five years ago. Thank you. This process was not easy. Everything did not change overnight. My mother died in September of that year, and my daughter walked out in October, having decided she didn't want anything to do with us. We were dealing with multiple forms of loss and grief. 
I would not have stayed sober if not for Jesus, Mark, Life Recovery, AA, and the love of my wife. This was a process that took time. I had to admit to God who I really was and who I had become. I had to surrender fully to my Lord and Savior and admit he was in control. I had to look into the mirror and face all the things I had done and try to make amends for them. I had to do some work in order for my life to change. Jesus walked with me along the way. He helped me work through the steps and to listen to the stories of others suffering from all forms of addiction. His love was evidence in the acceptance and care of my house church family as well. He helped me see it all in a different light. I realize that this will be an ongoing, long, lifelong process of allowing God to continue to define and transform me into more of who he would have me be. I'm happy to say that all the work has been truly worth it. I know that I am a better father, man, and husband, but only because of Jesus. I didn't do this on my own. He did it for me when I surrendered it all to him. Jesus saves in many ways. He broke my chains and set me free because of his love for me. I would like to leave you with these words from a song from Big Daddy Weave. I am redeemed. You set me free. So I'll shake off these heavy chains, wipe away every stain, because I'm not who I used to be. I'm redeemed. Thank you, Jesus, and thank you, Grace, for allowing me to share my story. lines I love the most in this story is Jesus saves in many ways, right? Like it starts with our sin. It starts with our brokenness that separates us from God, but it doesn't stop there. It just keeps working in our lives to free us from the effects and everything else that would trap us, keep us in bondage. And he kept going with Jacob too, so real quick, like we're almost done. But <laughs> Then Jacob turns to God and says, please tell me your name. And the man said, why do you ask my name? And that's a good question, right? Because Jacob's going to say in a few minutes, I came face to face with God. So he already knows. So why did he ask his name? I don't know, but I, I'd like to think it's because he wanted to get to know him better. Because you know what we see from here on out in Jacob's life is a man who never used to talk about God, never talked. In the next chapter, God's all over the place. He's telling everybody, look at what God did for me. When he prayed, he talked about, he, he would pray to God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac. You know what he says after this chapter? He says, God, my God. He wants to get to know him better. And Jesus keeps working. God keeps working. And so Jacob called the place Peniel. Saying it is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. And I love this image. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel and he was limping because of his hip. So he had encountered this God who wounded him. I don't know why, but God worked through it. And the sun dawned on this new day where God didn't stop even then. Go on and read chapter 33 for yourself. And he finally meets up with Esau. And Esau runs at him and throws his arms around his neck. But not to kill him. To hug him and to weep. To call him brother. Jacob says, seeing your face right now, Esau, is like seeing the face of God. Showed up somebody who I thought was an enemy. I realize he's really on my side. Folks, can we have the next step slide up? This week, I want you to take some of this with you. If, you. if it's been a while since you have made yourself unavailable to everybody except for God, I want you to seek a risky solitude this week. I encourage you to cling to the God who can change us. The only one who can change us. Keep going after him. Look fearlessly in the mirror. And then listen for your new name and identity in Jesus Christ. And for next week, you can read Genesis 37, 38. And we'll be looking at God's word in those chapters next week. Grace, would you stand to your feet? 
and we will worship him one more time. As the overcomer he is, he's a champion in your life and in mine. Let's worship him together.